they don't respond well to traditional witnessing tactics, right? These people are usually very skeptical about God and faith. The, the top of the house in terms of some of the most successful and accomplished and intelligent people I've ever met. Just because they're politely asking you some questions does not mean that you need to dump 20 plus years of Bible research on their heads. The way we at my firm like to describe this is you want to have a 90% plus A player team. The most impressive leaders are actually very reflective about the mistakes they made and what they learned. Welcome to the Hive Podcast, your number one podcast for Adventist entrepreneurs and ministry leaders. My name is Vincent Bujor, and you just listened to Cynthia. She was describing a certain group of people. We call them the W3s, wealthy, worldly, and well-educated people. How do we reach them with the gospel, with our businesses? You'll find out on today's episode. And we're also going to talk about how to improve your team's performance, hire A players, and improve your leadership skills. So grab a pen and paper and let's get started. Cynthia is a management consultant. She studied engineering and business at one of the best universities in the world, had a lot of W3s around her, and now she's actually in California, not too far from San Diego. Um, She's helping Fortune 500 company leaders with their human capital questions. I asked her at the beginning, like, tell me a little bit about your journey, about your background. And this is what she said. So I started quite outside of the world of business. So I started as a chemical engineering major for my undergraduate degree. And I was actually planning on being a chemical engineer And then what I like to think was very providential that God opened some doors that led me more towards the business side. And that's how I ended up joining management consulting or strategy consulting firm. Uh, And after I was doing that for three years, I went to private equity for a couple of years. And it was after that, that I went to get my MBA. So it's just an undergraduate degree in chemical engineering and an MBA. Yeah, and you have obviously on that journey, you have encountered a lot of people that are secular, that are, um, you know, that are also wealthy and um, that have this worldly concept of mind. So, so, so we want to talk a little bit about that. Actually, the majority of the podcast today, we want to talk about this. Um, how, how is it like? I mean, tell me a little bit more. You, you've developed together, uh, you know. Uh, with your partner that you have in, in the ministry and your team there, you've developed a concept called the W3s. Uh, tell me a little more about that. Um, what is it all about? And um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So we are a ministry called the Nicodemus Society that is that was created to help share the gospel and equip people with access to share the gospel with what we call the wealthy, the worldly, and the well-educated. And the reason why we thought this was important is because if you think about historically, our church is, and when I say the church, I mean the Seventh-day Adventist church, we have not been as effective at reaching this group. And it's mostly because our methods traditionally don't work with this group as as well as other methods, right? So historically, our church has done really great work, but it's just not suited for this group. So we historically do you know, prophecy seminars, we do mailers, 
We do uh, cold portering and knocking on doors. All those things are really important. And I have family members in my background, my grandparents, etc. They were reached. The gospel reached them through these methods. So these methods are absolutely important when it comes to reaching the wealthy, the worldly, and the well-educated. Those those methods are not as effective. And in fact, um, Ellen White, who many of you probably know, is is a very respected um, author and Christian from the 1800s. She wrote a lot about this, and she literally said, "The hook is not baited to catch this class." And so we decided, me and and my ministry partner and a few others, we all thought, hey, this is a need. We need to figure out how do you share the gospel effectively with this group. Wow, that's that's really exciting.、Um, you know, I think about all these businesses that that we have in our in our、uh, community, and I think about all the people that are、uh, the consumers, right? The clients they have, and and we have. I know for a fact that there are a lot of Adventist businesses that target. Uh, wealthy people, they target well-educated and worldly people. So this is very, very practical now for for a lot of listeners.、Uh, you know,、um, what strategies、uh, can we use? Then,、uh, what methods can we use? And how are these methods different from what you were just saying—the traditional ones that we that we all know? Yeah, absolutely. So anyone who has friends, neighbors, coworkers, or even family in this group. Is going to acknowledge that they don't respond well to traditional witnessing tactics, right? These people are usually very skeptical about God and faith. They usually have their earthly needs are pretty much met, right? They're not worried about where their next meal is coming from. Now, that doesn't mean they don't have problems, and we'll get into that. But historically, they don't have these. Concerns, and so if if you come knocking on their door, they're going to wonder, and and they have no relationship with you. They're going to wonder, what are you? What do you want from me? What are you after? Right. So the way that God actually and Jesus in the Bible teaches us and how to reach this group is by building a relationship first. Right. So、um, we can see how Jesus reached out to people like Nicodemus, which is why we called it the Nicodemus Society, or.、Um, People like Zacchaeus, right? So these were all wealthy people in the Bible, and Jesus reached out to them. and And、um, Ellen White, in her in her writings, actually commented how Jesus studied how to reach different types of people. He attended, they he accepted invitations. She wrote that he attended their feasts, and he studied how to become close to them, how to build relationships. I mean, it's true the old saying that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. It's a hundred percent true. And so, if you ask, "Hey, how do we reach this group?" It starts with building a relationship, right? And oftentimes, it's really because these this group of people is usually quite、um, they have a high standard, right? These are people who have done well in their careers. They're probably very comfortable financially. Um, they probably, I mean, if if we come up with an example, like if, when I was in business school, this was like the the top of the house in terms of some of the most successful and accomplished and intelligent people I've ever met, right? And these people were very healthy for the most part. I mean, it's not like they were going to be impressed by my my plant based diet. So, <laughs> so. Uh, what I would say is, you need to be credible, right? I always tell people if you want to put the name Christian on the back of your T-shirt, what representation of a Christian are you sharing with people around you? 
because at the end of the day, we want people to, we want people to be, wow, like Christians are incredibly hardworking. Christians are, um, they're really good at what they do. They're people that have integrity. They stand up for what's right. Um, they're fun, fun people to be around and they're people that I would like to, I admire and I want to learn from. So if, if you can make God look awesome and then build a trusted relationship, that's your foundation, right? And this is not about faking it because this is hopefully a authentic expression of how Christ has been working in your life. So it starts with actually you having a a genuine relationship with God first, let God work in your life so that you start transforming your own life into something that other people can look at and admire, not because you're bragging or because you're proud of yourself, but because God is doing something incredible in your life. You're living abundantly and other people find that attractive. Can you tell me some examples? I know that you have shared a lot of stories in the past. Can you tell me some examples what people, uh, again, this is not about bragging how good we are, you know, like you said, but showing how God worked in our lives. But maybe you can give an example. What did people notice about you or maybe your partner uh, that you have in the ministry um, where where actually the, the W3s, you know, these people actually got attentive and they were like, okay, um, Wow, this is very interesting about this person. Is there an example that you can share? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when I was working in a management consulting firm, one of the top strategy consulting firms, I was a manager of a team at the time. And I remember that I had a new consultant who was, who is incredibly smart. He, um, he did law school at Yale and business school at Stanford. So obviously top schools. And he joined my team as a brand new consultant, a brand new hire. And we ended up having you know, a great relationship. I taught him a lot for his first project. And he told me later that I was the best manager he's ever had. And in the course of our working together, we had some spiritual conversations, which we should probably talk about how that happens. But I remember, um, you know, as he was, he actually happened to be an Orthodox Jew. And I remember asking him a little bit about his faith and saying, oh, wow, I love that you keep the Sabbath because I keep it too. And it's such a blessing in my life. And he looked at me and he said, that's strange. I've never heard anyone talk about the Sabbath like that. (laughs) And so I was able to share a little bit about my testimony and how I'm not an Orthodox Jew, but I do celebrate the Sabbath. And I, you know, I happen to be supporting a parent financially. And he, you know, that really resonated with him because he was worried about how his parents didn't have a retirement plan and that he would probably have to support his parents too. So we just bonded over a lot of things. And then um, probably nine or so months later, nine to 12 months later, we ended up starting Bible studies. And the reason why we did is because, like I said, is he respected me, right? He, he, he said that I was the best manager he'd ever worked for. And that's why he was willing to ask me for advice, both professional development advice, as well as spiritual advice. Because uh, he at the time was telling me that he was struggling with certain aspects of his faith. And I, you know, I just asked him questions about it and offered to chat. And uh, it's interesting because he was an Orthodox Jew, when I offered to study the Bible with him, he said, okay, as long as we only use the, the Old Testament, which is the equivalent of the Hebrew Bible. So I ended up having um, a series of Bible studies with him exclusively using the Old Testament which was a blessing to me because I had never done that before. 
And what's nice about that is it impressed me that everything you need to know about the gospel is in the Old Testament. You don't actually need to use the New Testament if you don't, if you can't. <laughs> yeah, that's that's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. Now, now let's let's move a little forward in that uh, in that uh, protocol, that sequence here that we've started. Um, let's assume we are at a point where people are impressed, are interested, are curious, right about our personality, our characters. Uh, what is the next step then? Yeah. So you have a relationship, you are hopefully investing in that relationship, demonstrating genuine care for the other person. Um, the, the next step is to have natural spiritual conversations. And this is the, this is the most important part after you have a personal relationship with God is how do you start sharing the gospel with others? And you have to actually be very intentional before I used to hope that someone would ask me about my faith because I happen not to curse and I happen to eat healthy and all these lovely things. I'm hoping that someone will ask. But again, this group of people, the W3s, they they're they're not that impressed by those things. And two, we live in a society that is that is that is told that you need to respect people's personal choices without making them feel uncomfortable. So odds are people might not ask you about those things anyways. I will tell you the number one thing people have asked me about is the Sabbath. So we should talk about some some good ways to talk about the Sabbath. But back to your point is you need to start fishing, verbally fishing. I call it providing a conversational menu of options. So when people ask you very innocuous, normal questions like, what did you do last weekend? Or how do you maintain your uh, stress levels? You know, how do you not get completely stressed out by a very a high powered job or, Hey, how do you, um, how do you think about balancing your time better, et cetera? So there's all these types of questions that you'll always get from people. And the trick to having a natural spiritual conversation is to offer a few options conversationally, one of which is a spiritual answer. So if someone asks you, Hey, what did you do last weekend? Which everyone gets on Monday. Uh, what did you do last weekend? I will always be honest, but I will always at least have one spiritual answer. So I'll say something like, well, I spoke at a, at a, at a church about how you can bring your authentic self to work. Or I'll say, I went to Costco and found some lovely trees that I put in my house. Or I'll say, I had this brutal workout in the morning on Sunday that I'm still sore from. So these are all honest answers about what I really did. But one of them is quite obviously spiritual. And the reason why this works is because it's testing for spiritual hunger in a very natural way. If someone is not spiritually hungry, they'll say, oh, I love Costco. What kind of plants did you find there? Or they'll say, oh, what type of workout did you do? And that's fine. We can have that conversation. If they are spiritually hungry, they might say, oh, that's interesting. What church do you go to on Saturday? Right. So there's just different options and you're leaving the choice up to your up to the person you're speaking with. And, you know, this is something you do regularly in all kinds of conversations with all kinds of people. You're constantly fishing. We use the, when we talk about this for the Nicodemus Society, we use the, the um, metaphor of fly fishing, which is constant casting of bait in the water. You anticipate where the fish is going to be. You cast your bait, anticipating that location, and then you wait to see if the fish is hungry. Yeah, that's, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Thank you. I, I appreciate that. And 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 so you you just said that there are some good ways how we can mention the Sabbath. Now, obviously, one is what did you do last weekend? 
Do you have any other uh, uh, advice, any other um, ways how we can actually incorporate that into our conversations? Yeah, absolutely. This can, comes up a lot in a professional setting, right? Because you have to tell people that you are off of work during the you know Friday sunset to Saturday sunset period. So it often comes up in a conversation with your boss or maybe with team members just to let them know you're not going to be really be reachable for professional reasons. So what I always do is what I, I'll tell you what I used to do, which is a terrible idea. So what I used to do is say, I'm, you know, I very apologetically, like, I'm sorry, I'm not available. I keep the Sabbath, like it's a chore. And I've heard this so many times from people, people saying, I remember this one guy told me that he told his coworker that he couldn't come to his party because he had to unlock his church on Sabbath morning. Like that was the reason he couldn't come to his party. <laughs> so, you know, and it just sounds like a, a chore that you actually dread, but you have no choice. That's what it sounds like. And it's such a shame because the Sabbath is so much more than that. I mean, God didn't carve out 24 hours of our week for us to check a box, right? God gave us the Sabbath as a blessing because he filled it with his presence. And it, it was a incredible blessing to those of us who work really hard during the week. <laughs> I know myself, if I didn't have the Sabbath, I would just work on Saturday too. So it's an incredible blessing. It's an opportunity to rest, recharge, remember your priorities, remember what's important in life, spend time with your family, help others. It's just such an incredible 24-hour period. So now when I talk about it with my colleagues or my boss or my coworkers, I say, hey, I celebrate a 24-hour period during which I don't work. So it is a, it is a, I have to tell them it's religious reasons so that they understand this is not like a personal preference. This is like a religious commitment and to take it seriously. But I tell them this is a 20, I, I celebrate the Sabbath. It's a 24-hour period where I rest, I recharge, I focus on my faith and my relationships, and it just helps me stay balanced, which is the truth. So I did this a lot in business school because it came up a lot more when I was in, you know, in a social setting where people wanted to do all kinds of activities during the Sabbath, whether it was, you know, some TV show marathon on Friday night or, you know, going to some place on Saturday. And so I often had to share this and, and I, it, it, it intrigued people, right? Cause normally if you tell, Oh, I have to do X, they're like, why <laughs> who's forcing you. But when you tell them, I choose to celebrate a day that is transformative and it helps me stay centered and balanced. Then they're like, Oh, that sounds really cool. I want to try that too. And this actually happened. So I remember telling a, um, a classmate from the Czech Republic who is atheist, absolutely self-proclaimed atheist. I remember he asked me about Sabbath keeping and I explained, I explained exactly what I just told you, that it's a incredible tool to just stay healthy mentally and keep balance. And he loved it. He said, wow, that sounds amazing. That sounds so useful. And he actually told me he was going to try it, <laughs> which I said, great, you should absolutely try it. And he said, I just don't know how you do it because I have so many things I need to get done on the weekend. So he's like, I, I'm not sure how you're able to be so consistent about not working. And I said, you know, I respect that you do not believe in God, but I do. And I can tell you that God makes me more productive the other six days of the week. So that's all I can tell you is that it's not because I am particularly 
efficient, although I like to try to be efficient, it's actually not purely my willpower. It is because I think God blesses me the other six days. And so I just left him with that, but he loved the concept. He said he was going to try it himself. And <laughs> so that's your goal, right? Whenever you share the Sabbath, because it's going to come up a lot in professional settings, whenever you share the Sabbath, hopefully you actually do think it's a blessing and you share it that way. Don't make it sound like it's an obligation because we're all adults and you don't have to keep it if you didn't want to. Yeah, powerful. So, so how does it work from now on? Um, you let's say there is interest. There is uh, the people are asking questions now. How do you go from that spiritual conversation to like a Bible study? You know, how does that work? That's kind of a still a gap, right? How do you how do you bridge that? Yeah. So once you feel like there's genuine interest, whether it was about the Sabbath or whether it was something else, you feel like there was some good rapport. They they're genuinely curious. This is the most, the next really, really important step. You always need to leave them with an open-ended invitation. So it literally sounds like, hey, I think we had a great conversation. Sounds like you might find some of this, these topics interesting. If you'd ever like to discuss it further, just let me know. I'd be happy to. And then just leave that at that, that. And the reason why this is really important is because it's not a yes or no question right? You're not saying, Hey, do you want to study the Bible with me? <laughs> what does that sound like? That sounds like you're putting them against a wall and with a gun to their head saying, you got to tell me right now, whether you find this interesting. And usually I get, I bet you people would say no, because they're not ready yet. Now, occasionally I have gotten an immediate yes. when I ask the question, but it's not common. Usually people are like, okay, yeah, thanks. I'll let you know. Right. And then you leave the door open. And the reason why that's important, additionally, to that you don't put someone on the spot, it's because it gives time for the Holy Spirit to work. So you pray for these people after you've had a good conversation or even before, as you're just getting to know people, you constantly pray for them, pray for the Holy Spirit to influence their heart, their hearts and minds, and then continue investing, rinse and repeat. You keep investing in the relationship. You keep caring about them as a person. You keep having occasional spiritual conversations and you keep reiterating your offer. So my, um, my, my, uh, Orthodox Jewish coworker, I had given him that offer the first day I met him. Cause I was able to share a little bit about my personal testimony when I shared that I also kept the Sabbath and he was like, huh, okay, thanks. I appreciate that offer. And then multiple months passed. We finished our project. We stopped working together. He just asked for occasional professional development sessions once a quarter that we would connect. And then almost a year later, I was asked, you know, doing our quarterly check-in, I was asking him, how is your family doing? And he was, and how are you doing, you know, with your relationship with God? Because I know you had some concerns a few months ago. He was like, yeah, I'm still having some doubts. And I said, well, you know what I offered before, if you ever want to chat about it and study it more in the Bible, I'm, you know, happy to do that. And he actually said yes. So it took, it took 12 months since my first invitation. And that's another reason why it's important to ask an open-ended question, because you never know when they're going to say yes. And I've had multiple people who've answered yes months later since the original invitation. So always ask, just leave an open an invitation and just say, hey, if you ever want to chat about this stuff further, just let me know. Wow. Yeah, that, that, that is very important. You know, we hear a lot of testimonies and we sometimes when we watch a video or we hear a story, it seems like everything happened overnight, you know, like, oh, this, this person, you know, heard about it. And then oh, that, that spiritual conversation and boom, there was a Bible study and then the baptism. Right. And we think like in our lives, like doesn't happen. But actually, you know, 
conversion is not an overnight pro you know overnight thing it like it's a process you know and so like like i appreciate that you mentioned this because especially by the way vincent especially with this group mm. this group in particular takes a lot longer to make commitments so that's another point here yeah yeah wow wow thank you that's 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 really important to know and and i think I think it takes some pressure off us as well because we we don't feel like we did the wrong thing if we just sent out that open invitation and then two months pass by nothing happens like that's okay you continue praying for the person and uh, you know God knows um, you know we you know the Holy Spirit can convict and then and then the, the you know they might say yes later on right um, yeah thank you I I want to I want to kind of wrap this this part up here just with some some well maybe you have some last tips or some some other resources that you want to share um anything else that we should really pay attention to when we want to reach the w3s a few tips number one is don't try to answer everyone's everyone's questions about a spiritual topic in a in a water cooler conversation sometimes we're so excited that someone has any interest in spiritual things that you just want to dump the 20 whatever fundamental beliefs on their head right so resist the urge just because they're politely asking you some questions does not mean that you need to dump, you know, 20 plus years of Bible research on their heads. What you actually want to do is whet their appetite, right? You actually want to say, hey, that's a really great question. If you really want to talk about this, I can't do it justice in a five minute conversation, but I'd be happy to get some time, you know, separately dedicated time for us to talk about this. If you're interested, just let me know. So the key is, again, do not try to have a mini Bible study in a hallway conversation or next, you know, next door in the office. You always want to get separate time, get them to commit to separate time. So that's one tip. The second tip is to be patient. It is so it can be so frustrating if you're wanting to see results ASAP. You want people to be baptized in however many months, right? If this is not a this is not a quick Bible study where after 10 Bible studies, they're going to get baptized. You need to think about it like a lot of these people started as practically atheist or maybe slightly less than atheist. Maybe they're just agnostic or maybe they just have some bad experiences with religion in the past. This is not a time where you're like 10 Bible studies, boom, by baptism. You need to be comfortable that maybe on the spectrum from one to 10, where one is diehard atheist, 10 is committed Christian. Maybe there are two and by talking to you, they get to a three or a four, right? You need to be okay that you might never see them get to a 10 or even an eight. And that's okay because you are furthering the process of the Holy Spirit and you're letting God work with that person on their own time. So just resist the urge to force the process and meet them where they are and accompany them on their spiritual journey as a support person. So that's my second tip. Um, and then my third tip is to always start by asking them their biggest questions about God and faith. So rather than following a predetermined schedule of Bible studies that you might find like amazing facts or whatever, I always, always ask people, what are your biggest questions about God and faith? Anything, anything you possibly can answer. I asked this question to a, um, to a psychologist several months ago. And he sent me a list of 30 questions. And this guy is 
pretty, pretty much atheist. And he sent me 30 questions in the list, which was super helpful. Many of which I'm not surprised by. And many, I was like, whoa, I have no idea that this was in his, you know, that he had a question about this It's a very bizarre question sometimes. Um, but that's really helpful information because when you know what the biggest questions are, you can figure out, okay, given these questions and given our, you know, always ask them, what is your current picture about who God is? If there is a God, any data that you can have will help you structure the right series of Bible study topics tailored for that person's interest and that person's context. And that's way more effective than following a predetermined series of Bible studies that are probably not structured for that person and probably not interesting. So many topics will not be interesting to them. And it really mirrors what Jesus also was doing, right? I mean, if you think about, like, we talked about Nicodemus, right, or other other Pharisees, other people, Jesus always knew what questions they had, what they had to, you know, what they wanted to uh, they hear answers, uh, you know, about. And, and so he really always tailored that content to the individual and didn't have his set you know, you know, kind of the set of Bible studies uh, ready and he would just, you know, bring it out there. So, yeah, thank you so much. Um, I will say, by the way, if you are doing this and you're tailoring the approach, that means you're going to have to be a bit of a Bible student, right? Because I will tell you from years and many, many, many Bible studies with a lot of different W3s, they ask you questions that no one has published a Bible study on. So you're going to have to come up with a lot of Bible studies from scratch. Sure, you can you know, talk to people, get resources, but usually these topics, I've never seen a published Bible study on them. So you're going to have to, this is why it's such a powerful thing for your own spiritual life to share the gospel with others, because it strengthens your spiritual life. And it forces you to build the muscle of Bible study to find the answers in the, in the scriptures and be able to share it with someone else. So you know, warning, but it's actually a positive warning is that if you ever study the Bible with the W3, they will raise your Bible study game to the next level. Amen. That's, that's amazing. That's great. Now, I uh, wish we could talk about this more, but anyway, maybe, maybe another day. I want to, I want to also focus on, on just a few uh, tips here towards the end when it comes to uh, coaching and working with teams, because you are quite a very professional person when it comes to this, uh, well, a very, you know, experienced person when it comes to this topic, you are coaching and supporting executives at fortune 500 companies. And, and you um, you work a lot with teams. You work a lot with uh, you know top notch players in the industry all over the place. Now we also have people here listening who have teams. They have their businesses. They have their um, you know uh, they have their roles as an executive or manager. Um, can you give us some tips? Like um, I'm not sure we could start with maybe let's let's start with working with teams. Um, what do you think is important when we have a team? Uh, what should we t- pay attention to? Yeah. So. A common mistake that leaders make is they do not address underperformers. And I know as Christians, we care about people, we want them to be successful, but that's different from managing for performance on a team. Because if you think about it, the way we at my firm like to describe this is you want to have a 90% plus A player team. A player does not mean savant rock stars. A player just means you are 90% or more likely to be successful in the job's responsibilities. Whatever outcomes you're on the hook for, you are 90% or more likely to deliver on them. That's all it means. 
So it's nothing personal about the person. It, a, a person we say there's not really a, a a person that's always an A player, always a B player. You can be a B player in one role and an A player in a different role. It just depends on what outcomes you're on the hook for and what you're suited to do. So when we say all leaders should shoot for 90% or higher in terms of A players, the reason why that's so important is because it frees up your time as a leader, as a CEO, or whatever position you have. It allows you to focus on the places where you can add the most value. Imagine if you, and by the way, it also gives you a lot better work-life balance. If you had a majority C and B player team, you're constantly going to have to check people's work. You're going to have to teach people new things all the time. You're constantly going to have to coach people all the time on things that are probably not the best use of your time. So it, it doesn't free up your time to do higher value actions that only you as the CEO or the boss can do. So one piece of advice is to have an objective assessment of your team and ask yourself how much, how many of my team members are actually A players, meaning again, that they are, you can give them reasonable requests and they can deliver without a lot of handholding. They can run with things without you having to be super involved. B players are basically average you know, they're fine, but you'd have to do some handholding. And then C players are straight up underperforming. You, you can't trust them to take much. So you need to move on C players pretty close to immediately so that you don't have people who are, are creating that issue on your team. By the way, you'll have a harder time motivating A players if you also keep C players on your team, because A players are going to resent the fact that you're keeping C players around because usually the A and B players have to take more work because the C player is not carrying their weight. So to motivate the whole team, to give you the most leverage as a leader, and quite frankly, give you better lifestyle, give you better work-life balance and accelerate the performance of your business, you should really be shooting for majority A players. So that's one piece um, on teams. The second thing I will add is a lot of companies have very poor hiring practices. And the reason for that is many reasons, but it's usually the, the, prevailing, um, the prevailing, prevailing likelihood of success of hiring a, an A player is like 50%. So you have a one in two chance of, you have a 50-50 shot at hiring a strong person for a role. And that's pretty bad odds, right? So the advice that I would have is if you're a leader, you're hiring for, for your team, whether it's backfilling someone or a new role, have a much more objective way of evaluating a potential hire. So what we often hear people do is using a job description. I need someone who has this type of bachelor's degree, three to four years of experience doing X, Y, Z. They need to be able to, you know, manage a team. Like it's very generic is what often job descriptions do. Like they need to be able to travel five days a week, right? That's the type of job description you often see. But that's actually very ineffective because that doesn't actually say if they can deliver on outcomes. So rather than using a job description, we recommend that you use a scorecard. And a scorecard is effectively, call it five to eight outcomes that you need the person in this role to deliver in the next 12 to two to three, two to three years, call it two to three years. So for example, if you're hiring a CFO, you need to say something like, hey, I need this person who is going to be able to help us IPO 
in three years. I need this person to be able to get our accounting in order so that we close the books within two weeks at the end of the quarter. That's the type of outcomes that you're actually hiring for. It's not like, hey, I need this person to have worked in financial roles for four years, or I need this person to have had a bachelor's degree. Like that's not actually helpful. Somebody could check the box on everything in your job description and be incapable of delivering out those outcomes. So, you know, it's the size of the business that they have to handle. It's like how big of a team do they need to be able to hire a team and, and develop that team into 90% plus A players. Just so think about this. This is the number one question to ask yourself if you were coming up with a scorecard is to say, how would I know if they're successful in the role, right? So if the purpose is, hey, I need them to support the growth of the business, okay, how do you know they'll be successful? It's because the business tripled in size in 10 years or doubled in size in five years, right? That's the outcome you want them to deliver. That's a much more interesting question when you're evaluating the person. Is this person capable of doubling the business in, in five years? That's a very different question than have they worked in the industry for five years? Yeah, thank you. Does that you. make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. F quick follow-up question here. How do you actually make sure that, I mean, are you just at, at an interview, are you just asking the person, hey, those are this is the sc scorecard, this is what we want to achieve, can you make this happen? And then the person says, oh, yes, of course. You know, like, well, how does it work? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. No, no, no. So once you have, it's a great question. Once you have a scorecard, which you know are the key outcomes you need this person to deliver. If the person delivers on these, you know, five to eight outcomes, it's a perfect fit. They're going to slam dunk this role. That's your scorecard. You don't ever show the candidate the scorecard. You just have it in the back of your mind. And then you ask them a specific series of questions about their life and career. So when I assess people, I actually uh, actually spend four to five hours talking to them. And I talk to them about their life and career from their early years all the way through every single career chapter they've ever had. And when I ask them about their career chapter, I ask them the same five questions. I ask them, number one, what were you on the hook for? What was your mandate? What did you have to achieve? What were you hired to do? Two is what are you most proud of accomplishing? Three is what are your biggest missteps or mistakes that you did in this role? Right. Everyone makes them the most reflective. The most impressive leaders are actually very reflective about the mistakes they made and what they learned. Uh, fourth is I ask them to put themselves in the shoes of the people around them, their boss, their direct reports, their colleagues, their customers. And I ask them what those people thought of them. And then the fifth thing I ask is what made you leave? How did you find the next role? When you ask people those five questions about every single job they've ever had, you start seeing patterns of behavior and you very quickly start figuring out the answers of what's the likelihood of them achieving every single outcome on that scorecard. That's really powerful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I think we, you have to come back and share more because this is very, this is, yeah, <laughs> incredible to know. And I think, you know, I don't have a lot of people, you know, I don't have a big team working, you know, uh, you know, with me, but, uh, but I can really imagine how, how we as, as, as team players or executives can make these mistakes like you were saying. And uh, I think it's important to, uh, to kind of revisit that and, 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 and learn from that. And as you say, you know, change our, change our methods. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing that. Do you have any other comments or anything else that you want to maybe some advice you want to share with our listeners, anything else? 
Um, no, that but only if you want to find out more about hiring A players, attracting them, retaining them. There's actually a book that you can read called uh, everything that I described is in a book called Who, W H O, um, by Jeff Smart. So if you're interested in learning more about what we call the A method for hiring, you should just read that book. It's very detailed, very easy to read, and a lot of people have used that to hire better, better teams. Yeah, wonderful. And and also because we've talked the majority of our time, uh, you know, about W3s, can you share some resources uh, on that as well? Yep. So let's see. So you can go to nicodemasociety.org and um, find out links to more information. Uh, the best way to hear more details about the way to reach W3s is to just go to audioverse.org and um, look me up, Cynthia Heidi, and you can find additional, much more in-depth presentations that me and my ministry partner have done on, on witnessing to the W3s. Well, thank you again for taking the time. It's uh, been a privilege, and I think uh, we've learned a lot. So praise God. Thank you for coming. <laughs> thank you for having me. percent of businesses fail or never thrive. We want to help you turn your missional business around, making it profitable and scalable. That way you can reach more people with the gospel. Book a free coaching session on our website. Just go to hiveinternational.org slash coaching. Next week on the Hive Podcast. We should first secure the sales. Then, uh, uh, then we should find a smart way to move forward without investment. And maybe at some point you will need to invest, but it's better to invest into marketing, digital, uh, I mean, social media and this kind of stuff rather than into your warehouses. Because the warehouses these days, you can, you, you can rent third party. But the, but, but the thing which is unique, you can't buy it's the relations with your clients. And for some markets, it takes ages. Next week, TJ from Poland is going to be on the show. He's a sales and growth expert from Poland, and he has helped dozens of companies reach new territories, whether that's expanding into a new country, continent, or just entering the markets of Eastern Europe. He has worked with haagen Coke, Avalon Cosmetics, and many more companies. You'll learn how you can expand your missional business and reach new states, countries, and continents. And you're also going to learn what you can do when the next crisis is coming, what you need to do with your business. So tune in next Monday, 6 a.m. My name is Vincent Bourgeois. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. Hello at HiveInternational.org. I'll see you then.